Hey Sis, it's a weekly shakedown of the binary walls around us. Breaking it out and building a bridge. Checking our biases with empathy and humility and questioning the status quo. It's about building allyship that is intentional and confident. So I think a lot of entomologists kind of identify with that like minority or uh, side of diversity of people. That's like, okay, you're not, people don't understand you, right? So we have to help you understand us in order to appreciate us and the diversity that exists. We are now into December of 2020. Welcome to another podcast episode of Hey Sis. Today we're joined by Aaron Fairweather, a transgender PhD student studying at the University of Guelph in Ontario. Thank you so much for joining us today and happy belated birthday. Thank you. Thank you very much. Did you do anything exciting? I know COVID is <laughs> a bummer on a lot of things, but... Uh, yeah, I we ordered in sushi, so that was the exciting thing. But uh, yeah, just a relaxing day overall, which was nice too. That's awesome. Nice. We're super excited to have you join the show, Erin. And just off the top, um, I'll let you know, I use she, her pronouns. My name is Cynthia, and uh, we'd love to know what pronouns that you prefer to use. Yeah, so my name is Erin Further. I use they, them pronouns. Great. Welcome to the show. So yeah, so maybe let's dive in a little bit. Like, what do you what do you study at the University of Well? So right now, I'm working in environmental sciences, dealing with ants in agriculture. So looking at how uh, ants interact with crops in Ontario, Canada. Um, specifically looking at like their diversity, the ecology of them on these crops, like what kind of services they're providing, similar to how we're interested in pollinators on these plants. And um, then how we're impacting them. So looking at things like pesticide use um, and whether they're the pesticides that we know we know are having impacts on bees are having the same impacts on ants. Oh, wow. That's very cool. And have you found out any information yet because to the impacts? And Yeah. So I it was kind of crazy the way that my project unfolded. I initially wanted to do just the ecotoxicology side of things like the pesticide route. Um, but then as I got into uh, my program, I realized that we knew nothing about ants, especially in Ontario, but just kind of generally ants in agriculture, we knew virtually nothing. Um, so I kind of really had to outline the pr- this project to be like the stepwise of what's there, what it's doing, and then what we're doing to them. Um, and in doing that, I found that we, there was quite a bit of diversity. Like there was around 27 species of ants that were associated with a variety, like over, uh, 37 crops in Ontario. And then of those 37 species, one of them, Laziest New Niger, was found on every single crop. And it was in some cases found like tightly associated with the crop. So you found them nesting in the root systems. They were eating pest species like caterpillars and aphids on the uh, crops themselves. And so doing a lot of really important things. And so the next step, of course, is to see how we're impacting them and like how are we impacting these services that they're providing. Um, unfortunately, COVID kind of put a stopper on some of those experiments. <laughs> I couldn't be in the lab this past year, but I'm hoping to continue them next year. Yeah, no, I find a lot of people never realize, like, I feel like, especially with like ants and those smaller insects, people overlook them so often, but they're so important for the diversity of food and agriculture. Like, that's really, really awesome that you're doing that sort of research. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I've noticed, especially presenting at conferences, is 
I get the question a lot of like, how did you think to do this? Because a lot of people, they don't think of some of these other insects when they're thinking about these crops. They just kind of write them off as pests or that we just don't want anything that's not pollinators on the crops. Um, and for me, I just came from it from a perspective of like, I just love insects in general. So I just had this connection with ants. It was like, why not do this? Like, this seems interesting to me. Um, and that's not where a lot of people that are mostly in, interested in the economic side of agriculture think about. They don't think about the small things. Yeah, it's so true. And uh, so I know personally, because we know each other already, um, that you're from New Brunswick. Um, but what made you choose Guelph uh, for your post-secondary education? What kind of drove you over there? I have like this huge journey with science because I've always loved biology and entomology. And so as young as like two years old, I was outside keeping caterpillars and raising them in my house and watching them turn into butterflies and trying to draw them and stuff like that. My parents were very supportive of that. And I just kind of kept with it. Like I kept a journal at all times through grade school. I had little like biology textbooks, which I'd use to identify the insects I found. And then when I was in high school, um, I got one book for graduating uh, called Insects or Natural Diversity in History of North America, uh, Eastern North America. And it was written by Stephen Marshall. And I looked up Stephen Marshall and was like, okay, I want to learn from this guy because this textbook's amazing. And it just so happened that he was teaching at the University of Guelph. And so that's where I was like, well, that seems like a good entomology place to be. So let's go there. That's cool. And I, I'm curious, so we'd love to talk to you, like talking about diversity as a whole, um, just taking it into the science department in Guelph and um, being a PhD student who is transgender, what do you find uh, at Guelph as far as uh, the diversity that exists within the STEM at Guelph and its inclusivity, um, what the university is doing around being inclusive and that? Do you find it's a great space to be? Yeah, I found Guelph to be one of the most inclusive spaces of all of the universities that I've been with, whether that's going for conferences and stuff like that as well. Um, I mean, Canada in general is pretty, it has been pretty amazing with all of the locations I've traveled to, especially in entomology. Entomology seems interesting because we're so interested in this group of insects and like just this group of organisms that nobody really appreciates a lot. So I think in everybody having that experience of you get the public face of, oh, you're working with this gross thing. Like, why do you care about this thing? Or you're gross for liking this gross thing, right? Uh, so I think a lot of entomologists kind of identify with that, like, minority or uh, side of diversity of people that's like, okay, you're not, people don't understand you, right? So we have to help you understand us in order to appreciate us and the diversity that exists. Um, and so at all the entomology I've, entomology conferences I've attended in the past, uh, I would say five years at least, they've always had like, um, specific non-gendered, uh, washrooms put in place for the attendees and they've made that abundantly clear. Um, every conference that I've attended in the past five years has like a, a woman in STEM or a diversity committee meeting at the beginning of it, um, and specifically talks from uh, diverse groups in STEM to talk about their experience and that kind of thing. And I haven't seen that in some of the other conferences I've attended, like uh, conservation biology or um, specifically like uh, genetics and 
barcoding conferences and stuff. They don't really have that focus, whereas the entomology conferences do, which I really like. Wow. So there's a real link between uh, like the insect world and valuing diversity and connecting it back to gender identity and sexual orientation and that. Like, I, I really love that. I would have never thought of that link before. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And the University of Guelph has supported that quite a bit, specifically the environmental sciences department I'm in. There's quite a bit of diversity within the department, and there's been a really good initiative and push to make sure that a lot of the new hires and stuff are from diverse groups of people. And uh, I think recently they put together uh, a huge grant and support chain for getting um, – Aboriginal studies in the department and getting a chair involved in that and really linking that um, to the efforts that are on campus for uh, different Aboriginal groups and Indigenous people and that kind of thing. It's, it's really amazing. Um, and then the, it, it was kind of a crazy storm of events. Like, uh, yeah, we had this really unfortunate event happen uh, with a listserv that was hosted at the University of Guelph. Um, it was at the beginning of this year, I believe, around uh, March or April. Um, there was an entomology listserv and there was a, a BIPOC graduate student that had posted on the listserv asking for just a, a name change of one of the activities that happens at the Entomological Society of America. So the more, much larger entomology conference that happens. Um, it was the, it was traditionally called the Linnaean games and in recognizing the issues around Linnaeus and especially that Linnaeus never really had a position in entomology. The student was just asking to get that name changed. And so it was a little bit more inclusive and favoring of BIPOC students might want to attend this thing at the conference. Um, and then there was this huge backlash that happened from a select few members of the listserv from um, the U.S. And the university ended up recognizing that, okay, this is a listserv that's hosted through University of Guelph servers. This really comes down to us uh, not moderating this server that had existed on our service for um, a number of years. Um, and so there is a huge university-wide initiative put in place to get more awareness put out. It it got a lot of attention on Twitter for a while. And then the environmental sciences department specifically, because we deal with a lot of entomology um, concerns, we put in a committee in place for getting more tolerance and awareness, like um, workshops and stuff put in place. I'm a, I'm a part of the committee currently. Um, and yeah, it, it's just been great to see the response. It could have been a little bit better, but I think that's always the case. The university at least has responded to it and been really great about it. Yeah. I think, you know, kind of on a scale of like what they could have done, I think the option that they did take was a good idea <laughs> instead of not doing anything and pretending that it didn't happen. Yeah. Um, cause I think especially with post-secondary institutions, it's so much easier to kind of sweep things under the rug and kind of keep trucking through instead of acknowledging, you know, your mistakes. But mm -hmm. uh, that's really great that the university has been really, really accepting. So have there any been any like particular challenges that you faced as a trans scientist or maybe you have trans colleagues that might have faced kind of some challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest one is the lack of effort on the front of some faculty and I mean, hosts, hosts of events and stuff like that to really, um, I don't know, support and 
um, help with using correct pronouns and stuff like that um, at conferences or when you're giving talks. Um, people just kind of uh, default into a way of speech that it, it's not necessarily how it should be or, or acceptable. And I've noticed it quite a bit with like um, transgender individuals on any campus, the University of Guelph, but also any conferences I've attended and stuff like that. Um, again, there's a shift towards correcting that. And I've noticed at some of the recent conferences, particularly the virtual conferences, um, people have been asking like to put pronouns in your username and stuff like that, which has helped a lot with people keeping consistent and using the correct pronouns. Um, but it's still something that's updating and changing. And I think the university uh, system itself is helping to support that change. Um, but then it has to have an owner onus on the people, the faculty and the staff to continue and push that change. It's true. Actually, normally I, we, we'd always have our pronouns up here in, in our names as well. Um, I just spoke last week with um, some faculty and professors, members with Science Atlantic and the universities around the Atlantic region on inclusion and diversity. And we were talking exactly about that because I think what often you find in a university is those that are making the push for support and inclusion and diversity are generally the professors that have this vested interest. They're either uh, they're teaching about uh, gender studies, uh, they're they're teaching about um, inclusion in some form or level, but it really it needs to be consistent across all the faculties within a university to yeah. be effective. I was just going to say that it's it's always the members of uh, faculty who are like affiliated with the community too. Like I always find, uh, especially in like Halifax and the Atlantic region, um, there's such rigid like traditional scientists around here, like your old white cis man. And, um, like I, myself, I work within like science communications and just like communications in general and, um, like even like oceans and like tech, all that stuff, like it's all dominated by white cis men. And the only people pushing and advocating for that are members of the LGBTQ community or BIPOC community or members of those communities who, you know, are already less likely to be recognized. So it's hard for them to advocate for themselves on top of, you know, everything else. So. Yeah, it's tough. And, but it's funny because you get gems certainly within certain departments. And then I think those departments become the ones that really have, you notice they have a better support system in place. Like my uh, advisor, um, Nigel Rain, um, he's a cis white male, but like has really been so supportive of all of the changes that have gone on at the university and has been incredibly vocal with anything that I've done to I don't know, support or like promote my own identity within these spaces. Um, I mean, I feel very lucky that I have the ability and the privilege to be comfortable with myself and to share that. And so I try and um, share that voice as much as I can. And then Nigel has always been there to be like retweeting that or sharing that or speaking up about it at meetings. And anytime somebody has uh, misgendered me and he's been there. He's always been the one to say, Oh, actually, sorry, it's they, them. Um, and that that's amazing to have. I, I have never experienced or seen that before from somebody that's not a part of the community and doing that. And to see that is just wonderful. And I think that reflects in the department. Like we've seen all these changes because people like him exist. And then as other people that are in his position and are cis white males or something like, are able to see him doing that, they start to reflect those behaviors as well. And it's amazing. 
Right. As a cis person, he really becomes a role model for other cis people. And that's all it really takes is just paying attention and not being afraid to call call something out or correct something and and sort of clear the air and take that, you know, making it more comfortable, but not putting the onus on the trans or non-binary person. Yeah, I, I have to say, I've got my, my daughter is just in her uh, first year at Guelph and oh, nice. uh, she's in science there too. She loves science. She volunteered with PFLAG Halifax here along with Isaac and myself. And when she entered uh, into Guelph there, she said right away, she's super impressed about how um, it, it seems to be really inclusive and they seem to be like really proactive online and, and on their website and that she could really see and get a good feel that it would be inclusive. She's cisgender um, and straight, but a real advocate. And um, yeah, she was really impressed with Guelph. That's amazing. That's and great. Food. <laughs> and oh yeah, food. the Guelph is known for its like the, being the best in Canada. I think it is for the amount of food options. It's really nice. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's part of the reason why she chose it. But you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Would you feel comfortable, Aaron, like talking a little bit about um, your journey? as a trans person, um, sort of coming to a point where you decided that you wanted to, you know, that you needed to transition and the kind of supports or, or giving tips around the most important supports that were in place that helped you along the way? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm happy to share about those experiences. And my journey's kind of been um, multifaceted because initially on, I mean, I'm sure you can understand this too, Isaac, is like, coming from the Maritimes and New Brunswick specifically, it's a very more conservative atmosphere. And especially where I grew up, I grew up in a very small town. It was like 500 people. Everybody knew each other. There was nobody out. There was certainly people that have come out like myself after leaving the city, but none of them have come out like when living there. And it's, it was a stifling environment moving to Guelph, just being in that community of a greater number of people and being able to see visibly the diversity that exists. That was one thing that really helped me a lot, um, traveling and getting to be in that kind of environment. Um, and then just finding a community of people that were supportive of that in a digital space. Like, um, I, I found a couple of fandom based communities that I really identified with on the internet and they were very LGBTQ plus like supportive and in seeing more people being okay with themselves it le- helped me learn about myself. It helped me to reach out and look for resources that might've existed in local libraries um, on, on the library on campus. Cause there was a lot of LGBTQ plus literature in the library on, at the university of Guelph. Things like that really helped me. And I, I'm an academic through and through when I have an issue with myself or like uh, um, some problem presented to me, I quickly go to the literature and start to read as much as I can. Um, and so that that really helped me a lot that there was that availability of literature and there was sections specifically put aside for LGBTQ plus like concerns and topics. Um, and then Moving on from that, like my undergrad was fairly consistent. I didn't really use many of the resources that were on campus um, for talking about like who I was and my identity. I kind of just passively went through it using the online communities I was a part of and just being myself in those spaces. Um, But when I got onto grad school, having the support of mentors in those positions was really useful. Like 
um, my, my master's advisor was supportive of who I was and was like there when I came out as gay to fully support like my marriage to my husband and all of that. Um, but also in integrated biology, which was the first department I, I was associated with, um, at the university, they have, um, Shoshana Jacobs who uses they, them pronouns as well. Um, I'm not sure if they identify as non-binary or agender, but just having that visually there and on the website, like if you look on the integrated biology website at the University of Guelph, Shoshana is there with their pronouns on their profile and everything. And getting to see that really helps me be like, okay, maybe it's more comfortable for me to be myself. And I was questioning my gender at that point and trying to find resources about that as well. Um, and then moving on from my master's, I never came out during that. But when I moved on to the PhD, I got more active on science Twitter. And then at that same time, I'm not sure what really caused it, but I saw a huge increase in momentum of LGBTQ plus uh, in STEM like profiles and accounts and initiatives on Twitter and in online um, science space. So things like um, 500 in STEM, um, there's LGBT in STEM, um, but specifically the 500 scientists in STEM, that one was just a call to action where you could be anonymous or you could share your name and just write a profile on who you are and how you're in STEM and as an LGBTQ plus person. And I didn't think, it was kind of funny because I didn't think anybody was going to see that. Uh, I just thought like, okay, I just want to vent. Like I want to be a scientist and vent about who I am. And that was the first moment where I was like, okay, I'm non-binary, use they, them pronouns. And I hadn't even told like my family or my husband or anything at the time. I was just like, I want to see how this feels. And it happened that my advisor was paying attention to the hashtag and saw that and sent me an email. I was like, I'm not going to share this, but I saw this and I'm here for you to talk to me. I'm here for you to be yourself. If you have a name change or you want your new pronouns used on my website, like anything you need, just let me know. And that was, that was really like the biggest mentorship moment for me where I was like, okay, then if Nigel's going to support me, I can be myself. And I just came out to everybody pretty much at that point. Oh, I love that. That totally gives me shivers. I'm sure Isaac as well. Yeah, no, I'm sitting here. I'm like, oh, that's like amazing. Like I, I keep saying it's amazing, but just like that, it's it's just so great to see really supportive people. And especially like I was, I was going to talk about this briefly before, but the fact that a lot of people who use like transphobic or homophobic kind of ideologies and have those kind of opinions um they often use biology as a basis for their kind of hate speech but Mm -hmm. you're coming from a place with you know that you're actually educated in this and there's no one that you've interacted with and especially people who you look up to within who are biology professors um no one's not supporting you so there's you know no reason for to believe that biology is anti-trans or anti you know gay or anything like that and i think i think that's amazing yeah, no, it's 100% true. And I think the scientific community, like, I, I'm sure it varies depending on where you go and who you talk to. There are certainly people that are anti-trans or anti-LGBTQ plus in the scientific community that exists. But if you're in, I mean, just the more progressive forward, the scientific community that really is at the cutting edge of 
uh, science and literature, they know, and they're there to support you and to debunk the people, the scientists that might be dissenting against you. Um, and I, I've certainly been trying more recently to be on that front line as well. Uh, I, I know you saw it, Isaac. I put together a document specifically talking about my experience and my uh, journey through the literature, looking at sex and gender and them as spectrums and how that is like the scientific consensus today um, and putting that whole document together. And I, I think I'm, I've been trying to put out that more forward that there is this huge body of scientific literature that supports all of this. And if anybody's dissenting against you, it's not just your word against them. It's anybody that you talk to that is a credible scientist will be behind you and have your back. Do you have a link for that? I mean, I'd love to share that too as part of the blog post to this because between that and theology, it's always great just to have those back up you know, to show people that, yeah, the science is there and is very real. And like, you know, someone's gender identity should not be up for debate. You know, biology is so complex. I always say narrowing us down into two simple boxes worldwide is kind of, it's so limiting and so untrue, but it, it, it doesn't even seem realistic as a possibility. No, I think that's a really, really great resource, especially for folks who are looking for that validation. And I know like within my experience, like so many folks seek to, it, it kind of exactly like you, Erin, that they seek to literature. So it's it's so important to find the literature that also supports your way of life and your understanding of things to make sure that you not only feel validated, but you can also validate other people. So yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, it's funny because nowadays, if anybody is coming at you asking like, okay, what are you? Are you male or female? Like right off the bat, it's like, they're not coming at it from a biological perspective. There's no reason to, they, they don't need that medical information. The medical information only has to stick between you, your doctor, and if you're comfortable, your partner. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was, that is one of the main conclusions I try and get across in the document is there are so many facets to what we call biological sex and gender and there are so many categories or traits within each of those categories that we think about um, when we're trying to formulate our idea of somebody. So really blocking people into these blocks, it's been useful in the past to, well, especially medically, to arrive at conclusions. But because of big data and because of the digital age, like you don't need that information out there publicly on any documentation that anybody else is going to see or anything. So, yeah. I can definitely, I'm happy to share that. Yeah. In a recent talk that, um, that I did, Suzanne Zink, um, who is uh, one of the head psychiatrists at the IWK, uh, she's very actively a part of the trans health team. And she was talking about gender identity and, you know, just the entire social construct around it and, and how really like its basis um, on how uh, transgender um, was against the law and, you know, how it came down to a lot of law and then theology in the past. But the law was based on the, on the link to property rights. And so the idea of a woman dressing up as a man um, to try to get property rights, which is why it had become an illegal act to dress uh, not according to your gender identity to uh, in order to get rights that that weren't uh, you're not eligible for and and that's part of where the, the you know it was based in you know historically, which I found was really interesting and 
um, sad as well. But uh, I think when you break things down like that for people and look at like where it actually was rooted in, whether it's religion or, you know, for procreation, for um, building population, things like that, you know, people can kind of come to terms a little bit more about how gender identity has been socially constructed and manipulated throughout the decades. Yeah. And I mean, um, I, I'm sure both of you are familiar with Radiolab. Um, one of the series that they did, uh, Gonads, was really eye-opening for me on the public face of people using male and female almost like as a weaponized term um, in some cases. like Because within sports, male and female has often been used like over the past hundred years to section off people and and i mean there are some credible under like re- reasons why people have been using like male and female or like different morphologies to um get people uh in appropriate brackets um but the way that they approached the topic on radio lab was um the the history of how uh, what was defined specifically as male and female changed. And he was using those different biological traits that I break down in the document. So specifically, it started as uh, like a, in a, in a physical inspection, which is like incredibly invasive and like horrible to think about. But that's how it started. It's like if you physically look this way or this way, especially in terms of genitalia, you're categorized as male or female. But then it we soon realized that wasn't enough. And so then in sports, it transitioned into karyotyping, so looking at chromosomes. And then we realized in sports that that wasn't enough. And then all of a sudden it transformed into hormone. Like if you had a certain amount of testosterone in your system, then you were male or female. And it like, it broke down each of these trait categories within biological sex that we often think of as the public as this one group lump sum that results in your biological sex. And it's like, no, this example of something that's very like, I don't know, it seems very cis or heteronormative in sports that they, they had their own issues with how to define biological sex. Like that should be enough evidence to show you that it's not a cut or dry issue. You you just can't determine one thing or the other uh, based on any of these traits. You have to really form a mosaic or an idea based on the spectrum. Yeah the spectrum it all comes back yeah yeah and and i think just on that topic too like gender as we know it as like a western culture is so heavily westernized and like even if you like my my academic background is linguistics so i always try and (laughs) use this reference as much as i possibly can but our conception of what like she her he him is and the image that we see in our head is so different if you compare it to for instance like china and where in the Chinese language, the um, pronouns that you would use for he, him, she, her are the same. It's just you would add different inflections on the end of, end of it, depending on, you know, who you're talking to. But it's less about gender and more about status. Um, so it's really it's really interesting when you look at gender from all these different academic stances, because yeah. nothing ever adds up. <laughs> like you yeah. can't solely base it off of, you know, biology. You can't solely base it off chromosomes you can't solely base it on you know socio 
economic factors kind of going back to what Cindy was saying. So I yeah. love you bring in your linguistic knowledge into this. <laughs> who, made the, who made the French language? It gave men chocolate, le chocolat. It gave them bread. It gave them like all the best words are masculine. And like, it blows my mind. Oh yeah. Romance languages are one of the weirdest things. And especially for like linguists themselves, like they look at it and they're like, I don't, I really don't know. <laughs> Grammatical gender doesn't make any sense, but it is what it is. If anyone tries to change it, the, what is it? L'Academie Francaise will lose their mind. So. Uh, I had a stream, like when I was creating this document, I, I live streamed it on Twitch. And um, one of the things that came up was the languages perspective. And when I was thinking about my own experience, like as a bilingual country and French being the second language, like it's, it's so weird thinking back to what the teachers would say about uh, how you identify something as masculine or feminine in the French language. Um, I remember clearly some of my teachers just saying, you just get a feel for it. Like you just learn over time what is masculine and what is feminine. It's like, if you don't have any rules associated with it, like how am I supposed to learn? <laughs> right. And it's true. And it's words like aggressive, I think are masculine and then sympathetic is feminine. And so I think, anyway, I'm trying to go on my, my knowledge of, of French, but you know, you have to have a sense of genderized language to be able to figure out the, the pronouns yeah. um, anyway, like, yeah, from the very beginning, which is, it's almost makes it impossible to de-genderize French, which is not a word de-genderized. I don't think, but we'll throw it out. We can make, we can make it into not one, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I know uh, I can't remember the language off the top of my head, but um, there's another one that uses grammatical gender. So like grammatical gender is where gender is implicated directly within the words that you use. So for instance, like French is, a, is an example of a language that has grammatical gender. Um, but anyways, they dis distinguish between um feminine, masculine, and neuter between if something breaks, like can shatter or explodes. And it's the, uh, <laughs> like, I, it was the weirdest thing. I was doing a project on, I wish I could remember the language. Um, but anyways, and it, we had like an example of like a living animal. And I was like, I, <laughs> you can break a leg, but you can also like explode an animal. Like that's the thing you can do. So yeah, it's it, the the rules that are around them are as confusing as like the binary. So <laughs> that's for another episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So shall we put Aaron uh, in the spotlight, or is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we uh, we give you a quick Q and A, Aaron? Um, no, I think I think I'm ready for Q and A. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, who wants to be a millionaire style? Exactly, exactly. 200 on the board. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll kick it off then. If you can share with us, and th this can be Guelph University related as well, because I'm always curious to hear what people are eating at that university. Do you have a favorite food? Oh, uh, ever since moving to Ontario, I think my favorite food is sushi. And it's because of all the all-you-can-eat sushi restaurants in <laughs> Ontario and around me. It's like, oh, yeah, to die for <laughs> Nice, nice. And I was going to ask the cats or dog question, but I think I'm going to open it up a bit broader. Um, and your answer cannot be ants. Oh, <laughs> but what is your favorite animal? Oh, the, and it's funny because it, it doesn't, people always assume it's going to be ants, but I was going to say, it my, probably isn't. <laughs> my favorite 
uh, animals, Lethoceris americanus, which is a giant electric water bug. Um, it's the largest insect that we have in Eastern North America. It's found in, really commonly in ponds and stuff. Um, but it's like a big predaceous bug that feeds on things like tadpoles and fish. And when I was little, I used to keep them in aquariums and raise them all the time. And I just, it, it's like my most nostalgic feeling of like my introduction to biology and how weird and wild, because they look like leaves too. So it was just like, yeah, one of my favorite experiences as a kid. Okay, so you have to send us a picture of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, they're part of the isopod family, aren't they? Or are they completely different? No, so they're in insects. They're uh, part of hemipterans. So things like aphids and stink bugs and stuff, they're in the same group. Oh, as well. right, right. I love stink bugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you? Yeah, I. you know, I'm, there's a book we used to read to our kids when they were younger. And uh what was it called? The, it's the bugliest bug of all. And it's about, it, it's a great insect book anyway. And uh, yeah, anyway, and there's a stink bug in it. And also in Marlon Bundo, I think they portray um, Donald Trump as the stink bug, which is pretty funny. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> oh yes, they do. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so um, are you reading anything right now? Or do you have um, a favorite read that you want to share with the listeners? Oh, yeah, I am. I mean, I haven't had time for much um, like personal reading lately, but um, a couple of the books that I'm reading right now are The Fire Ants by Walter Schinkel. Um, it's like it might not be for everybody, but it's a really cool accumulation of one of the biggest myrmecologists, like one of the biggest people that study ants uh, alive today. Um, he just collects kind of put together every piece of literature that he was involved with from it over his career and, and put it towards like this novel about uh, his main study organism, which was the fire ants. And I love that. Um, another one is, uh, oh, what, what is it called? I, I don't have it on me right now. One sec. I'm not imagining the ant book is uh, a Heather's pick. <laughs> no, <laughs> but a good read nevertheless i always love asking academics this question because it's never like um i'm trying to think of like a stereotypical like the fault in our stars or like you know like stereotypical books like that it's always something really yeah. interesting so i think if you have the time to actually read something for enjoyment it's got to be good yeah 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 it's true um so that one that i pick up like all the time and kind of revisit i've revisited like five times is how to understand your gender a practical guide for exploring who you are um it's like it's a really cool book because it has great stories and dialogues about what gender is and like how we associate gender with uh different aspects of our lives but then also it's a workbook so you can like fill in components of it, like how you think of your own gender and how you think of like other people around you or objects and stuff like that. I really, really, really like it. Okay. Would that be a good book too then? Do you think for uh, parents and caregivers of young trans people who are your gender creative kids that are questioning their youth? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I've, uh, I've recommended it to quite a few academics like Nigel has read it. Um, my parents have read it. So yeah, it's definitely a really good one to, if, even if you're not exploring your own gender, just if you're interested in gender in general, like it's a really good read. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay. I'll have to get my yeah. hands on I, I find there's a lot of resources. I mean, I don't want to say there's a lot of resources, but there's a lot of books that target 
like gender questioning people, but there's, it's always hard to find good resources for like parents and like yeah. academics and individuals who are members of either like the cis straight community looking to uh, help advocate. So that's, that's awesome. That's yeah. true. And I think a workbook is really great because it can give that opportunity to ask the questions and, and like really ask the child questions as opposed to trying to just feed them information, but not really getting, giving them a sense to explore their own answers and share them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or comparing answers is really fun. Like I've done it uh, with a couple of my friends where we'll arrive at a work sheet and say, okay, you think of this thing as like masculine or feminine. I think of it as the opposite or something like that. And then it gives you perspective on how different people perceive different situations, activities, objects, and that kind of thing. I love that. I, my daughter did one with me once on color and we were talking about like, what's your happy color and whatnot. And what was her happy color was my angry color. I was like, Oh, I hate that color. It just makes me rage. But yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah. Or how we all perceive things quite differently. So no that's problem. great. Yeah. Thank you. No problem. It's been great chatting with you, Aaron, and a pleasure to listen to a, a scientist at Wealth share their, what they're doing and and how they're changing the world uh, through the questions they're asking. And it was really interesting even just learning about the entomology and the crops. And I'll look forward to, uh, to reading some of your, uh, your articles or your, your thesis when they're published. Awesome. Yeah. No, I've really enjoyed being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You can follow Aaron and learn more about their work on Twitter at InsectAaron. And to explore all the great resources we discussed today, check out the Simply Good Form website. Well, that's all the time we have today, folks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hey Sis. If you have any questions you want to ask or want to join in on the conversation, email us at connect at simplygoodform.com. Thank you all. And remember, inclusion matters.